0: Happy Easter. Amen. Really, uh, that's the way that we uh, normally kind of hear it to spoken in our society, but really, we like to say Happy Resurrection Day. Amen. Happy Resurrection Weekend. We are so glad that you're here to celebrate. Uh, you know, this isn't necessarily the weekend that Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection happened uh, in the same sense as we celebrate our birthday. In fact, the the day changes kind of every year, but, um, but this is the day, this is the, this is the weekend that Christians all over the world have set aside to remember what Jesus has done for us. So we're so glad that you're here to join together with us in that. If you've been here for uh, 10 years, if you're part of our church family, if you've been here for a few weeks, maybe this is the first time you've ever been, we want you to know whoever you are, you're welcome here, amen? Because the Lord wants to do something in each one of our lives together. You know, Easter means a lot of things, doesn't it? Uh, For many people, it means getting a new dress, kind of getting new clothes, maybe taking some pictures, or uh, getting together with family, hiding eggs, getting a basket, getting a candy. In fact, to be honest with you, well, I'm not going to go on a tangent, but as a parent, I've been hearing this thing about Easter being the same as Christmas. I put a kibosh on that real quick, amen? (laughs) We got a one-time going debt per year, Amen. (laughs) But I digress, Easter's a lot of things, a lot of fun things, a lot of good things, being off work, being off school kids, amen? Easter's a lot of good things, a lot of fun things, but I'm glad that you came to church today to remember why we really celebrate Easter. It involves all of those things, but it means something much, much more significant than just those things. And just as that video that we saw at the very beginning of the service kind of helped remind us, the Bible says that God came into this world. God came as a human being. His name is Jesus Christ. And He lived the perfect life. And He died a cruel, terrible, horrible death on a couple of pieces of wood that we call the cross. The cross... Crucifixion is one of the cruelest forms of punishment and torture that mankind has ever come up with to hurt one another. You can see some of the images on the screen of some of the story that happened as we read the crucifixion story. Jesus, they are praying in agony in the garden, knowing as God that that these things were about to take place, but as a human being, as a real man, 100% God, 100% man, knowing as a man that these things were going to be almost unbearable to handle. We see about his trials, his Roman trial, his, his trial before the Jewish leaders, his flogging or his scourging. And what that means is that they would take someone, as you saw that picture of him uh, leaning down over a post, and they would take uh, kind of what we've called in the more modern times, a cat of nine tails, Basically, a, 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 a whip that would have straps of leather, that would have pieces of pottery, broken pottery, or rocks that would be placed within those straps, brought across a man's back to beat him literally within an inch of his life. And then you saw the image of Jesus being nailed, His hands and His feet being nailed to the cross. And then... I almost want to apologize for the image just before this where you saw Jesus on the cross. I mean, really, it's almost unbearable to see, isn't it? It's almost too much. It's almost distasteful to show in, in public. But really, we show you that image because that is really a great picture of what really happened. Jesus really died. He really shed his blood. He was really beaten. He really took the pain of the cross, and not just the cross, He took the pain of my eternal punishment. What I would have had to pay, what you would have had to pay, what every person who's ever lived deserved to pay for their sins in one blow, one person. God, the least. no, The, the last person in all the universe who should have had to do it, the most innocent of all, Hung on a cross for hours, dying and paying for my sins and for yours. And there you see, that was not the end of the story, amen? That's why you do not see Jesus continuing to die on a cross. Up there, that cross is empty. Because we're reminded that He paid that price. But the Bible says that He mightily, powerfully, as Pastor Chris said, victoriously on the third day rose again. Jesus showed that what would have destroyed us eternally, he paid for once and for all and was victorious over for us. You know, we tend to focus on Christmas a whole lot it seems like in our culture. But but, but we need to realize some things as we look at the Bible, as we look at the message of the Bible. If you read the gospels, the gospels as many of you may know are Matthew, Mark, Luke and John the four books of the Bible that open up the New Testament section, that give us the account of Jesus living on this earth, walking on this earth, there are approximately 3,800 verses in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Out of those 3,800 verses, approximately 180 verses are devoted to the birth of Jesus. The thing that we rightfully celebrate, amen, I mean, it's great to celebrate... His coming, but the thing that we celebrate typically more than any other, the Bible devotes about 5% of the Gospels to that message. Now listen to this. When we look at the last week of Jesus' life, that talks about His suffering, that talks about His death, that talks about His resurrection, approximately 1,300 verses out of the 3,800 verses in the Gospels are devoted to the last week of Jesus' life. Almost uh, more than a third, almost 36% of all the material that we have in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are devoted to the last week of Jesus. In fact, if you look at the book of Mark, almost 40%, almost half of the book of Mark is devoted to the last week in Jesus' life. Six chapters out of 16 chapters. If you look at the book of John, almost 50% of the book of John, 10 of its 21 chapters, are specifically talking about what we have been celebrating over the last week together as Christians all over the world. If you think about that, in terms of the total context of Jesus' life, If he lived, as many Bible scholars believe, if he lived 33 years, he lived approximately 1,700 weeks. And yet, over a third of the message that we have about his life here on this earth is devoted to that one last week of his life. Isn't that incredible? Doesn't it begin to say to us that there is something about what we have been observing over the last week, what we call the Passion Week, what we call Holy Week, what we call the last week of Jesus' life, however you want to put it, there is something about these days that are critical to us understanding what God wants us to know in our relationship with Him. In fact, many have referred to the cross as the hinge of history. Everything before the cross was really building to the cross, and everything since the cross is really lived in light of, in the shadow of the cross, because of what happened on the cross. As we think about all that, as we look at those images, as we think about Jesus suffering in the garden, as we think about his trials, as we think about him being spat upon, read, go back and read those passages. In Matthew 26 and 27, just to give you an example in the Gospels, as we read about Jesus being beat up by a legion of brutal soldiers, could have been as many as 600 men. If you've ever been in a locker room where boys abuse or, or, or mistreat another young man, that is the image of what Jesus. He was beaten across his back. He died upon that cross. He struggled for every breath. He felt the pain of all that we had done coming upon Himself. As we think about that, I want you to have this thought. He did this for me. That is what the Bible says, and that is what I want to focus on with you together today. The Bible says, as we look at that story And the incredible price that He paid, God did that for you. And we're going to look at Luke chapter 15 in the Bible. If you have a copy of God's Word, you can turn over to Matthew, Mark, Luke. It's the third book in the New Testament. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, you're welcome to follow along on the screen. But as we think about, as we celebrate Easter this weekend, I want you to understand that God did that, all of that, and more than what I've just described, God did that for you. And I want to read Luke chapter 15, verses 1 through 7. It says, Now all the tax collectors and the sinners were coming near him, coming near to Jesus to listen to him. Both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. And Jesus heard what they were saying. He heard those religious leaders. And their heart, their attitude, their comments about these sinners who were coming to be with Jesus. So Jesus told them this parable saying this, What man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open pasture and go after the one which is lost until he finds it, when he has found it? He lays it on His shoulders, rejoicing. And when He comes home, He calls together His friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with Me, for I have found My sheep which was lost. Jesus says in verse 7, I tell you that in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance first thing I want to point out from these verses is this, and, and by the way, it's good news because some of us wonder about this. Some of us maybe haven't been in church as much, or maybe, maybe you have been in church, and because of the emphasis of some churches, maybe you've never heard this message. But, but write this down. The Bible teaches us in Luke chapter one, or Luke chapter 15, verses 1 and 2, that God cares. God cares about real people like you and like me. Now, I say that God cares about real people. If you read the Bible, the Bible says God cares about how many people? God cares about all people, okay? So if you read the Bible, we see that God cares about everybody. But the reason I say it that way is because most of us, and I think that's the emphasis that Jesus is giving in this passage as He tells this story, most of us, when we think about God, and we, when we think about who God relates to, when we think about who God accepts who God's okay with, who God's pleased with, when we think about that, we typically think about perfect people. We think about religious people. We think about church people. We think about people who've been to Sunday school, who kind of have done the whole program, have maybe been through confirmation, who've been baptized, who've given a lot, who've served a lot. We have images in our mind about the kind of people that God accepts. But not only does this passage not teach us that, it actually kind of flips that whole idea on its head, doesn't it? It kind of teaches us the opposite. In other words, God might be different than we thought. And you should say, Amen. Amen. God might be different than you've heard. God cares about people. God cares about all people. God cares about real people. God even cares about imperfect people like me and like you. Look at verses 1 and 2 again. It says, Now all the tax collectors and the sinners were coming near Him, coming near to Jesus to listen to Him. Now if you'd read this during the first century, if you'd heard this, that would have been shocking. All the tax collectors... We're coming close to Jesus. The Bible says there was, there, there, was a, there was a group of people full of people, lots of regular, real people, and it says some of those people were tax collectors. Now, you can probably imagine that in that day, people involved with taxes were very much seen as corrupt. Now, that's not hard for us to see living in New York, right? Because <laughs> <laughs> enough said, right? And I'm sorry to bring up taxes during this time. Amen? By the way, if you haven't paid yours yet, it's coming, all right? But many times, they were not just seen as corrupt people. They were corrupt people. There was kind of this wink-wink with the Roman government that they would say to the tax collectors, hey, you go out into the villages and towns and the areas in your jurisdiction. You collect the taxes that we're requiring for you as our agent to receive but if you want to collect a little bit more for yourself, if you want to take advantage and extort the people, by the way, your own people, if you want to take your own share of the money, that's fine. So that was this, these people's jobs. They were crooks. They were absolutely corrupt. I want you to think about it. We probably all have some... some ideas in our mind about people like that, right? Maybe even some professions like that, right? I'm not going to say any because I don't want to make anybody mad and offend anybody who might be an otherwise good person but has that profession. But but we tend to have some stereotypes about certain professions that, you know what, not thinking about any any, any individual, but just as a whole, they're a bunch of crooks, right? In general, when I'm dealing with a person in that category, I've got to watch myself I've got to check things. I've got to look at my invoice because these types of people are known for kind of taking advantage of people. If you can think of in your own mind, whatever that category is, if you can think of those kinds of people, or maybe even you know one, not to get you all riled up here right now, but but if you can think of specifically a person like that walking into a church... how that feels? Hmm. Sure. You're coming to church. That's a big joke. If you could imagine that, you begin to get a little bit of the image of the story that Jesus was telling in the context in which he was telling. And then it just says, those people... Probably the worst of the worst. I mean if anybody, you know, showed up, the tax people showed up, they're coming, trying to get close to Jesus, who is supposed to be a God man, a godly man, a spiritual man, and then all the rest of those sinners. Okay, so so it's just kinda all those people that in general are seen as maybe not as spiritual, not as godly. Maybe they had made some big mistakes in their life. They had done some things really wrong or or they were just not seen in general as good people. Those people were trying to get close to Jesus and hear what He had to say. Look at what it says. It says, they were listening to Him. They were interested in what God had to say about their lives. Wow, amen. We could say, oh sure, you come. Or we could say, oh wow. Wow. That's great, right? Can I share something with you that I've found and God seems to affirm? Many people who do not come to church and do not necessarily see themselves as religious per se want to know God. They want to know what God has to say. They are open to God. Many people who do not come to church, I've found, are open to God. And Jesus affirms that in this passage. In fact, you might be here right now. You might say, I don't go to church. This is the first time maybe I've been in a while. I don't know much about the Bible. Maybe you have been coming to church. You say, I don't know much about the Bible. I don't know much about spiritual things. All this kind of intimidates me. I've made a lot of mistakes. I don't even need anybody else to judge me. I'll go ahead and put it out on the table. I've blown it a lot in my life. I've done some even committed, not just made mistakes, but I've done some... Very bad things that I don't want anybody else to know about my life. But honestly, I'm interested in God. I'm open to God. I want to hear what God has to say. And the awesome picture here is that God wants those people. Can't you see that clearly in the verses that I just read? God wants those people who others might think that God wouldn't want to have anything to do with. God says, no. Let me set the record straight. I want all people, really, right, to come close to me. Now, that doesn't mean that God ignores our sin that's in our lives, but it does mean that there is no sin that can keep us from God if our hearts are open to Him. Friends, this is good news on Easter, amen? This thing that Jesus did in coming into this world and dying on the cross, He did that for you. He did that for me no matter what you've done in your life. Whether this is the first time you've ever been in church, whether you've been here for a few weeks or whether you've been here for 15 years. The Bible says no matter who we are and what we've done or how other people might feel about us or judge us, God cares about real people like you and like me. And He died on the cross for sinners like us. If we will come to Him, and respond to his message. Isn't that good news? Amen. In fact, did you know that's what the Bible calls God's message? The Bible calls God's message. You've heard of, of it as the gospel. But actually, we're speaking King James when we say the word gospel. The word gospel is old English. It's from hundreds of years ago. Now we use it as kind of a technical term, but many times I don't use the word gospel. Not because it's a bad term, but because we don't get the full sense of it. The word gospel is, is Old English for good news. And it is really a translation out of the... If you read the original language in which the Bible is written in the Greek language, the word literally says God's message that we share with one another and with the world is good news. Isn't, isn't that telling about God? that God says the emphasis for my message to you is that it is good news for you. Praise the Lord. But unfortunately, not everyone is happy about God's concern for real people. Do you see it in this verse? We see some very religious people watching what's going on. So get the image. We're having a meeting. Jesus is there. He's walking on this earth. He comes and these people who've done wrong are trying to come in and listen to Jesus. And then there's these other people, these religious leaders, the Pharisees, which was just kind of a a very uh, conservative uh, religious sect among the Jewish people who had made up all these rules, all these regulations. They were very religious people. They would have been seen by their people as very spiritual people, not by God. They were very religious people. They were very churchy people. They did a lot of religious activity. Then there were the scribes. Now these were the people before had this, the printing press who, how would you get a Bible? How would you get a copy of God's Word? They were people who were given the assignment in their life to very meticulously transmit the Word of God from generation to generation. And by the way, they did an awesome job. But imagine... There was anybody that knew the Bible. It was who? The scribes. I mean, they had looked at it and they had written it and they had turned the pages and even when their mind was going blank, they were still writing, they were still seeing. That was their job in life. These were were the super spiritual. These were like the people that we would look up to. Those must be God people. When those people saw real people who needed God... Coming to God, they didn't like it. They didn't like it at all. They claimed to be God's people, actually, more than that. They claimed to be God's representatives, and they thought of themselves as very cleaned up. And they could not believe that Jesus, if he was truly who he was claiming to be, that he would relate to sinners like all these people that were coming in. You know what the funny thing is if you read Luke 15, 16 and 17? You know what the funny thing is? It's not funny, it's actually kind of sad. But from from our perspective, looking at the Pharisees and looking at the scribes as very self-righteous religious people over the next couple of chapters, Jesus deals with the fact that those people who thought they were so cleaned up were actually pretty big sinners themselves. They may have had the worst of all sins, pride. They were ungrateful to God. Jesus is great. You can, I'm not going to go back and look at each of the verses, but you can look at the teaching that Jesus gives after he gives this teaching that we're reading right now. They were ungrateful to God. They were greedy people. They were materialistic people. They were self focused. They were not people of integrity, which means they were one way in public, but they were another way at home. And maybe, worst of all, except maybe only second to pride maybe worst of all, they were blocking other people from coming to God. That should be what is shocking to us, amen? How dare anybody keep anybody else from coming to God? So Jesus tells them a few stories. The word that's used here in the Bible is the word parable. When you see that word as you read reading the Bible, the word parable just means an everyday life story that teaches us spiritual truth. So Jesus was a very simple teacher in the sense of He wasn't trying to be complicated. He wanted us to understand His message. So He gave us a simple message that we could understand that had profound spiritual truth behind it. And as He does that, He shows us that this thing that we're celebrating this weekend, Easter weekend... God did that for people like you and people like me. Let's read verses three and four. It says, or we'll reread it. It says, so he told them this parable, he told them this story. What man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one? One out of a hundred sheep, what man among you does not leave the ninety nine in the open pasture and go after the one until he has found it? God cares about people. God cares about real people like you and me. But the Bible tells us here in verses 3 and 4, God sees our lives, and He sees that we've lost our way in life. That's emphasized several times in chapter 15. We're not going to read all of chapter 15, but I think I've already mentioned to you that Jesus not only tells this story, the parable of the lost sheep, He tells a second story, the parable of the lost coin, He tells a third story, the parable of the, many of us have heard this story, the parable of the lost child or the lost son. We call that the prodigal son, the story of the prodigal son. He tells three stories in this passage in response to that attitude by those religious self-righteous people. He says, listen, I want you to understand how I'm seeing this. And I want to tell you three stories that illustrate my heart. And as he tells those stories, he tells about three different things that were lost and needed to be found. And Jesus is illustrating to us that God sees that you and I, we are lost and we need for Him to find us. Now I know that in a sense we fight that idea, don't we? We fight the idea that I'm lost. We fight the idea that I need help. We fight the idea that I've messed up or I've gotten off track. Either we're too proud to admit that we need help, or sometimes even church has taught us, you're not supposed to be weak. You're supposed to be good. You're supposed to be strong. You're supposed to keep it together. You're supposed to pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Unfortunately, many churches have taught us that we're supposed to try, try, try really, really hard. But friends, I want to share something with you. That is not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that we cannot do this on our own. And I think that we realize that if we're really honest. We would have to admit to God, God, I have. I've lost my way. I need your help. I need you, God, to come rescue me. Maybe a young person, it was your family. Maybe your, your siblings or your parents who let you down, who didn't provide the support for your life that you so desperately need. You thought your family was going to be the the one group of people in your life that could come through for you and they let you down. Maybe it was being bullied at school. Maybe some friends who, who you thought were, were, were there for you, turned their back on you and made fun of you or put you out to shame in front of some other people. Maybe it's adults. Maybe it was your marriage didn't make it. Maybe your finances have not been so high. Maybe you've made some mistakes. Honestly, that's being nice, isn't it? Because every single person in this room, including the person speaking right now, have not only made some mistakes, we have actually actively done some things wrong, haven't we? We've made choices. And I don't want you to know my stories, and you don't necessarily have to tell me your story if you don't feel led to do that. But, but the fact of the matter is every one of us have lost our way. We've gotten off track. We don't know what our purpose is. We've lost hope in this world. The reality of this life is it does not take very long to get your life in a mess. Amen. Amen. The Bible puts it like this All we like sheep have gone astray. From what I've heard from people who herd sheep, sheep are pretty dumb. And, you know, I don't think God's saying this to us in a derogatory way, but I think just the reality is we're like sheep. If you let us go, we're just kind of wandering around, bumping into wolves. Amen? Getting off track, getting away from the herd. The Bible says all of us, every single person within the sound of my voice, all of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us, do you hear the individuality of that? every single one of us have turned to his own way. Sometimes getting lost is not the direct fault of our own. Listen, friends, if you put your car outside, especially in the North Country, and just let it sit, if you do not act upon your vehicle, it will rust, right? That is the way this world works. But we do act upon a vehicle, and it rusts, and it gets in ditches, or it goes over cliffs. The Bible says whether it's through fault of your own or no fault of your own... We live in a messed up world. We live in a messed up body. We make wrong choices without God's help. We all find ourselves far away from God and needing Him to rescue us. And to be honest with you, it's actually worse than that. I mean, we can see that from a practical standpoint. We can see, yeah, I've messed up. I mean, I mean, really, don't we feel the temptation? Just, I don't think I'm just going to go to the casino and just kind of kill a few hours, and the next thing you know, you're losing your house. Amen? I don't really care what anybody thinks. I'm going to go have a few drinks. I might even have a few extra drinks. And I think I can handle it, and the next thing you know, you're getting a DUI. Man, it is so easy to get our lives off track. And we see that practically in those kind of ways. But friends, the Bible says it's actually more serious than that. We can understand on some level that we're lost. We can feel that. We can... We can can relate to that. But the Bible actually says there's a spiritual lostness that we have. That we have wandered away from God. That our sin has caused a separation between us and God. And we can't have a relationship with Him. On our own, we can't do that. And so if we die like that, we will be lost and separated from God forever and ever. That's what the Bible says. But the good news of Easter is God sees that. God knows that's where we're at. God cares about that. And that's why we are celebrating this weekend. God knew that we needed rescuing, God knew how to rescue us. Friend, God did this. He did it for you, and He did it for me. The reason for Easter is not my mama cooks really good, even though that's a nice part of it. Amen? <laughs> it's not getting a pretty dress. It's not getting, you know, a nice basket or, or hunting for eggs or, or being out of school for a few days. All those are, some of those kind of things, we're not trying to um, minimize every special thing that goes around a holiday. Some of those things say we're celebrating. We're doing different things because we're celebrating. But we don't need to forget the main reason for Easter is because we are lost. And God sees that and He cares about that. Friend, He did this. For you I want to show you in verses five through seven how passionate God is about that God finds great joy in coming to our rescue look at verses five through seven again let me back up to verse four Jesus, Jesus said what man among you if he has a hundred sheep has lost one of them does not leave the 99 in the open pasture go after the one which is lost until he finds it then in verse five When he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders. Get that picture. And by the way, this picture is of who? Who's the shepherd? It's Jesus, isn't it? It's God. When he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep, which was lost. I tell you, Jesus says that in the same way, that same level of rejoicing, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. There's really two things that stick out in verses 5 through 7. Write these down God rescues, and secondly, God rejoices. We're lost. And God is willing to seek us out, to find us and to rescue us. And when He does, the Bible says He rejoices greatly over that. As I read verses 5-7, through what an incredible image of God. Amen? Isn't it almost a little bit overboard? Isn't it almost a little too playful for our image of God? Amen? For God, because many of us have grown up with an idea of God. as Maybe it came because of your... You know, Many times in our lives, our parents, if we don't have a real image of God, we don't go to church as much, our parents are really a reflection of who God is and what He's like. And maybe you didn't go to church, and maybe your reflection of God is maybe some sternness on behalf of your parents. Or maybe you went to a church. Many churches are very kind of iron-fisted and very sort of domineering, very, you know, God is mad, God is upset, God is going to get you eventually. That's the idea that we have. That is not the image that we find in God's Word. Amen? God is serious about sin. And He does judge sin, but He does not want to judge sinners. I don't know what else to say to you people if that don't get you excited. Amen? (laughs) The cross tells us that God is a just God. He cannot overlook wrongdoing. He would not be a good judge if He overlooked wrongdoing. But the cross tells us that God did not want to judge me and judge you. He was willing to rescue us if we would put our faith in Him. God is a holy God and He must take sin seriously. But He is not wanting to judge us. He finds great joy in coming to our rescue if we will allow Him to do that. In fact, though it's not brought out, listen, though it's not brought out and focused on as much in these verses, Listen to what's being said. When he has found it, the shepherd, he goes looking for the sheep. When he looks for the sheep, when he finds it, he throws it on his own shoulders. That's really a very playful, gracious, kind, loving, relational way of describing the cross. Just like any hero... Jesus minimizes His own sacrifice in this this passage, amen? Think of what it was involved. He goes out looking for that sheep. He finds it and He throws it on His own shoulders. What is that describing? It is describing the price that was paid on the cross. But Jesus is not emphasizing the price that He paid, the sacrifice that He made. But even though He doesn't, we've got to understand that reality. God rescues us with a mission that is almost too much for us to absorb. That shepherd going out to find that sheep, if you and I and me as his sheep, if we were going to be able to come back, he had to go to the cross. That was the price. He did that for you. But the point in these verses is not the price of the rescue. The point is that when God rescues, he rejoices. He rejoices greatly. Look at what he says. He lays it on his shoulder. What a tender picture of Father God. Amen. He lays me on his shoulders. I am helpless. I am lost. I am afraid. I don't know what to do. And God comes and grabs me and rescues me. He calls his friends and neighbors. What a picture of the best thing that ever happened to me. Isn't that what he's saying? This is the best thing. By the way, don't forget, he just found a sheep. He said, what man of you, if you lost one sheep, would not go out? And I think probably that was some hyperbole. Probably many of them would say, I wouldn't have done that. I mean, one out of a hundred lost? Kind of, we kind of figure 10% lost, right? So that's just 1% loss. Every once in a while you're going to lose a sheep. But Jesus says when He finds one of us, if there were a hundred of us in this section right now, and one of you was lost, God would go to all that great effort to rescue you. And then, when He found you, He would be beside Himself. Isn't that a little much? Isn't that a little overly playful? I don't know if I'm comfortable with God being that, I'm not going to say flippant, but, but but that, I don't even know what the word is. But you know what? This is the word that God... My God is not sitting on some throne bossing everybody around. My God, your God, the one who gave His life for you was willing to come into this world and to fight a battle for you that you could not fight. And He's willing to offer that to you because He loves you. And when you come to Him, He rejoices greatly. He calls all of His friends together. The Bible says in the same way, there is joy in heaven when one sinner repents. If one of us in this room Right now, we're to say, Dear God, I need you. I know I need you, God. I have gotten far away. I didn't think you cared about me. I didn't think you'd allow people like me in the room in your presence. But, God, I need you, and I give my life to you, and I accept this wonderful gift that you've offered to me. You know what the Bible says? There is joy in heaven. I share with people when they receive Christ as their Savior. Right now, the balloons are dropping. The kazoos are going off. The band gets going. Everybody says, oh, okay. Somebody else just came to the king. Praise the Lord. And all of heaven rejoices. Isn't that an incredible image? The thing that makes heaven stop and pay attention and celebrate is one of us sinners like you and me giving our life to him. By the way, do you see that he kind of pokes at those religious people? He says, there's a lot more rejoicing in heaven over one of those bad sinners that you don't like coming to God than there is over 99 of you that think you're right with me, but your heart is far from me. Friend, God does not just make space in it. Listen, there are many of us who would think about it like this. Okay, maybe God will will kind of let me be on the back row, or He'll just let me squeak in. Friend, God does not just make space for you out of His kindness. He's looking for those perfect, all-put-together people. He's not just doing that and letting a few of us dirty, rotten sinners, messed up people come in. The Bible says that it is people like you and me that He saves. Rescuing lost sinners brings God great, great joy. And if anything, he would say to those self righteous, religious looking people, you need to come the same way they did. You need to realize that it's not your devotion to a set of standards, it's not the amount of money that you give, it's not the amount of time that you serve. It's not the amount of prayers that you say. Not to say, listen, some of you take that all or nothing. It's not to say that giving, serving, praying are not good things. But they are certainly not on God's top priority list. God's top priority is rescuing you and me. And then, when we're rescued, man, I want to pray because I want to talk to my God. Amen? Then, when I'm rescued, man, I want to give because I want to contribute to God's work. I want to serve because I want to be a part of what God's doing. I, you know, I want to read God's Word because I want to understand my Lord better. See, do you see the difference? Those activities do not make us spiritual. In fact, in some regards, they can be dangerous. Because they sort of anesthetize us to God's work. We think we're spiritual. when really, our hearts may be far from God. So really, God kind of corrals us all, doesn't He? Every single one of us. He did this for you. That cross that we saw Jesus hanging on just a few moments ago on that slide, He did that for you, friend. And whether you're the most religious person in the world, whether you pray five times a day, whether you read your Bible, whether you listen to Christian radio all the time, you might be the most spiritual. People might say, you're the most spiritual person I've ever known. But you know in your heart, I don't know God. Maybe even that you've been faking spirituality because you don't know God. So to that person, maybe you grew up in church. Maybe you've been at New Hope for a decade. But you would say today, I have never... Given my life to Jesus Christ. Maybe you're somebody that, you know what, you would say, hey, everybody would identify me. If they heard I was in church right now, they'd say, really? You went to church? I mean, I'm just one of those people, you know, that that people kind of joke about. Well, friend, the, the Bible says God's not joking about you. He was willing to send His Son to die the worst death ever died and to pay for your sins because He loves you. And there is nothing that you have done that could separate you from Him if you will allow Him to forgive you. Isn't that good news? Maybe you're here and you're one of those religious people and you are a child of God. But you know you've kind of stepped in the wrong direction. And you've quit emphasizing the heart part. And you've been emphasizing the outward part. And God's speaking to you you're blocking some people from God. Your attitude, your pride, your arrogance at work or in your family. Friend, listen, God is rescuing you because some of us are going to be sitting across the table from family members who need the Lord in the next few hours. And you can either draw people to God or you can drive them away. I want to be drawing people to God. Amen? Would you ask the Lord, Lord, search my heart. Am I accurately representing you or would I be a person in this story holding my nose up in the air saying, what are those people doing here? God help us if that's our attitude. Amen. I want to ask you to bow your hearts as we ask God to speak to us. showed you some of those images earlier because we want you to think about this. Those things that you saw, that you've heard, that you've read, that we've talked about, friend, He did that for you. And He loves you so much that He was willing to pay that price for you. Whether you're the least religious person in the world or whether you're the most. We all need that saving. I wonder if there's somebody here right now that say, Pastor Robbie, whether you're religious, whether you're not, I know I need God. And I'm glad to hear today that He would accept me. And I want to give my life to Him. Would you lift up your hand? Anybody willing to say that? I want to give my life to Christ. Are there any sinners in the house who need a Savior? Amen. God bless you. Anybody else? I know if I died right now that I have not been forgiven of my sins. I've never personally received the gift of salvation. Anybody else? I want to receive that gift right now. I'm not going to put you on the spot. I'm not going to call you out. I'm just going to say a prayer you can lift up to God right now. Amen. Amen. God bless you. God knows your heart. It's my joy to lead you right now. What a, God, thank you. My Lord, you died on that cross for me. It's a joy to serve you, Lord. It's a joy to share with these precious people. Sinners like me, that there is salvation. Right now, Lord, it is my honor to lead them in a prayer to receive your gift. Anybody, whether you raise your hand or not, would you just say to the Lord in your heart, Dear God, thank you for dying on the cross for me. Thank you for paying for my sin. Thank you for rising from the dead. I accept your payment for my sins. And I receive the life that you are offering to me right now. Eternal life. Thank you, God. Thank you for saving me. Congratulations, dear friend. The kazoos, the balloons, heaven stopping and looking down at Queensbury, New York, and saying, There's one, there's two, there's three, or more given their life to me they're they're the ones i died for oh i rejoice god would just say to you well done i love you i have a purpose for you i want to grow you i want to teach you you don't even have to worry about any of that right now just rejoice that your name has been written in the lamb's book of life while they're rejoicing if there's anybody here that would say you know what I've, I've had a moment like that in my life but I've moved away from God and I need to ask God to forgive me to cleanse me of that attitude honestly I'm kind of arrogant against some other people I look down my nose at some other categories of people I ask God to forgive me of that that is not an attitude fitting of his child thank you Lord for your children that are listening God that are growing I pray that we will never be the same after this Easter because we saw our Lord hanging on that cross we realized the price that was paid and now we want to live in resurrection power This is our earnest prayer in the precious, powerful, overcoming name of Jesus Christ. Would you say it together with me? Amen.